The job of the blender is to combine these elements in such a way as to produce an overall flavour. A wider repertoire of different beverages than ever before. I think one of the most interesting breweries and certainly one of the most interesting origin stories for a brewery in Australia. Single malts, blends, grain whiskies, bourbons and more. If you want mezcal to be sold around the world, then unfortunately you're going to have to make a compromise. This is the Drinks Adventures podcast. I'm James Atkinson. And this is the show where I speak to some of the world's most exciting producers of beer, wine and spirits and uncover trends and issues in the drinks industry today. Canada might be best known for its ice wine, a type of dessert wine produced from frozen grapes, but it's increasingly getting global recognition for the quality of its dry table wines. And our guest today, Natalie McLean, can fill you in on some of the regions and styles to look out for. Natalie McLean is a Canadian wine writer, educator, judge, and podcaster. And here, we're doing a bit of a podcast exchange. You can catch me on Natalie's show, Unreserved Wine Talk, sometime around this episode going to air. After we explore Canadian wine, we'll find out a bit more about Natalie's podcast and her upcoming third book. It's a memoir that, among other things, she says will explore the darker side of the wine industry. Sounds very intriguing, doesn't it? And that's coming up later in this interview with Natalie. Well, Natalie McLean, thanks so much for joining us on the Drinks Adventures podcast. James Atkinson, great to be here. How are you? <laughs> yeah, good, thanks. <laughs> All right. It's been a whole 24 hours, I think, since we chatted it, it on has. my podcast. <laughs> it has, and now I'm in the much more comfortable position of asking the questions rather than answering them, which is, which is uh, a relief. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, look, my knowledge of Canadian wine is really limited, I have to admit, but the one style I am familiar with is ice wine. Now, is that still a big part of the industry today? Sure. It's what we're known for, uh, along with all the other stereotypes of lots of snow, the coldest place on earth, half the polar bears of the planet live in Canada. Um, So ice wine is kind of what we're known for, also because we're the world's largest producer of it. So Germany really invented ice wine, if you will, but it doesn't get as consistently cold here um, year after year to produce it. So on average, Germany will produce ice wine three or four years out of a decade. We'll produce it every year. So yay, we've got the cold uh, to to produce it. Um, But that said, we produce a lot more wine than just ice wine. It represents a lot of our export because it's expensive, but we produce wonderful dry table wines as well as uh, sparkling. We'll get onto those in a minute. With ice wine, there's obviously been an established industry there for for a long time now, and there are wineries and vineyards that are set up purely to produce ice wine. Is that is that correct? Yeah, there are um, several specialists. Most of the wineries do produce a range of wines uh, just for the income. I mean, it's risky. Ice wine, you know, the hang time is longer on the vine. You've got more predators and so on. So it's an expensive wine to make. And just for people who aren't familiar with it, you know, how do you make ice wine and and what's the kind of, um, you know, what's the sort of flavour and aroma profile of this style of wine? How does it compare to other sweet dessert wines like, you know, Saturn or uh, other Botrytis type wines, for example? Generally, the harvest here happens sometime uh, between September and late October for regular dry still table wines. And then the ice wine grapes, though, will hang on the vine until December, sometimes even January, 
uh, into our winter, and they must be picked at minus eight degrees Celsius or colder. So that usually means at midnight, uh, you know, when it's really cold on a winter's night, often they'll pick below that, like say minus 10 degrees Celsius, because they don't want the grapes to um, melt and they want them really to be almost like ice pellets. Now, if it gets too cold, like sometimes they've, you know, picked at minus 15 and lower, they can break the presses. They're so hard. <laughs> They're just wow. little marbles, if you will. But what happens is that as the grapes have hung on the vines that long, they dehydrate. And so what's left is a lot of sugar, a lot of concentrated flavor. Of course, they've soaked up a lot more sun into their skins. Um, so they're just packed with flavor. And the flavors tend to be like apricot preserves and um, peach and honey. And the difference um, in flavor between, say, ice wine and a sauterne is a result of the difference in the way they're made. So with Sauternes from Bordeaux, that's noble rot. So they're also dehydrating the grapes, but it's the result of a, um, a noble fungus, Botrytis. Whereas ice wines are dehydrating simply because they hang on in there so long and, and they just, it's the winter, it's they just dehydrate and shrivel that way. So what you're going to get in ice wine is a lot more fresher fruit flavors, whereas in Sauterne, you're going to get um, perhaps more mature uh, fruit flavors, not the freshness. That's not to say they're not fresh wines, but they just have a, a more like spicy, um, nuttier kind of flavor in a Sauterne than you would get in an ice wine. Tell me about you know the evolution of the Canadian wine industry then, because from what you've what you've said, it's it's really um, evolved to now produce some really creditable examples of, of other table wine styles. So it wasn't until about the late 70s that the first commercial winery opened up. There was also always um, family families making wine, um, just as there are many countries, especially those who are immigrants from Italy or Germany or you know wherever they came from. But Inniskillen was the first commercial winery to open in the, the 70s to sell their wine. And gradually, over time, of course, more and more wineries opened up and they started learning what works well here in terms of grapes, you know, what are the soils, what's the climate. And of course, it's all cool climate here. So think uh, Riesling and cool climate Chardonnay and Cabernet Franc, Gamay, Beaujolais, or, um, Pinot Noir. Um, and now, today, there are more than 800 licensed wineries across the country. Uh, you know, we produce a lot more wine compared to them, but we're still a drop in the bucket globally. Like, I think it's 0.3% of wine produced commercially around the world. That, that's Canadian wine, 0.3%. So that's probably why you don't hear about us a lot. But what we do, we're small but mighty. Um, so the wines win consistently in competitions. They're great quality, superb. Um, and uh, they win across the board, not just for ice wines. What are the key regions and what are the you know great varieties that you think are, where you think Canadian wine is truly world class? So most of the wine is produced in Ontario where I live, so 80 to 90% depending on if you're going by volume or dollars. And it's the most established region, so just at a high level and then the math isn't going to add up completely here, but then uh, let's say approximately 10% from British Columbia on the West Coast. And then Quebec, which neighbors Ontario to our east, 
maybe 1%, 1 to 2% in Nova Scotia on the East Coast, another 1 to 2%. So in Ontario, some of those that I mentioned previously do really well. So your Riesling, your Cool Climate Chardonnay, Cab Franc, Gamay, Pinot. I wouldn't say we're consistent at ripening big reds. 2020 was a really hot vintage for us, so it was spectacular for big reds. But the bigger reds tend to be in BC, where they're the last 30 miles of the Sonoran Desert. It's still technically a cool climate viticulture, but they do get, they have better luck with ripening big reds out there. Uh, that said, they still produce in their cooler areas, Pinot Noir, Riesling, every, all the grapes that I just said. And then in addition to that, You've got um, sparkling wines, which are classically made, the three grapes, you know, of Champagne, Pinot Noir, Pinot Manier, Chardonnay. And then the grapes for ice wine tend to be Videl or Riesling and some reds like Cab Sauve or Cab Franc. But, uh, you know, and then out in the East Coast, Quebec and Nova Scotia, it tends to be ger German varietals that do well in even colder climates or hybrids. So a real mix. Is it mostly consumed domestically? Yes. Um, so the ice wine is our biggest ep export. It comprises about 80% of the wines we export, again, is what we're known for. But most of the wine is consumed domestically. We are a thirsty bunch, I think, like you folks in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, look, when, when you kind of look at some of your, your favourite Canadian wines, if you were to put them next to um, old world examples of those varieties, is there a distinctiveness to these Canadian wines? Sure. I think there's sort of a transatlantic sensibility, if you will. Uh, I sound like I'm hedging my bets, but it, we're definitely in the new world um, and in a cool climate. And of course, everyone likes to nod to benchmark varieties like Burgundy Pinot Noir or Chardonnay. Um, so there's definitely some resonances there. There's winemaker exchange of knowledge and stages and all that sort of thing. But I do definitely pick up a distinctive um for me, the one I'm most familiar with, Niagara Signature. You know, we have our limestone. We have the cooling effect of Lake Ontario. They're nervy and edgy, the acidity in a good way. They makes them spectacularly food-friendly with so many dishes. Um, I just think that, you know, that there's so much potential too. Has climate change, you know, played a, a big role in Canada in terms of sort of making areas that might not have been quite viable um, yeah, possible for and, you know, suited to grape growing? Well, one of our more northerly regions is Prince Edward County. It's it's not that far north. It's not up there with the polar bears by any means. But um, what they traditionally have had to do is hilling. So pushing the, the vineyard soil up against the vines before winter comes so that the vines don't die from the frost kill over the winter. And although they still do that, um, we're... You know, from the winemakers I've talked to, they're experiencing overall a lot warmer vintages and less winter kill. And I think what's happening here might be happening globally. It's for us, it's not so much global uh, climate change as global weirding, like <laughs> instead of global global or climate change, um, climate weirding, in that we're getting extreme weather events. So 2020 was so hot. And then, you know, there have been freak hailstorms that will, you know, just destroy the bud break sometimes in spring. It's not constant, thank goodness, but it's there and people notice these extreme weather events. So, you know, that, so we are- Not very beneficial then for the wines. No, not usually. No. no. You know, even if we get El Nino effects, like a warm, warm right into December, 
we can't harvest our ice wine because they just don't get to that frozen state. So anyway. Yeah. <laughs> now let's talk about your podcast, Unreserved. Tell me about how you came to launch the show. Sure. Well, you know, I've always loved the intimacy, that theater of the mind of radio, having a more in-depth conversation with someone versus on Facebook, a video that lasts two minutes because no one will, no one's got the attention longer than a sparrow on on social media. And so I'm now into, I think it's episode 166 of Unreserved Wine Talk. And it's also given me permission to email and ask for guests to come on the show whom I never would have had the courage to just reach out and say, hey, want to grab a drink sometime? And yet this is even better because I get to talk to them for about an hour. What have been some of the highlights that you've had, you know, in terms of guests and, and some of your favorite episodes? I really love um, the some of the winemakers who have had some colorful stories to tell, um, like Randall Graham, Bonnie Dune, California. He is just, he is a real wit. He's written a couple books and He's a, he's a bit of a, no, he is a poet, I think, too. But he's just got such insight, but it's wrapped in this dry wit. And I love it. He knows how to tell a story. Charles Back was another one from Fairview uh, in South Africa. He also makes the whimsically named um, Goats du Rome label. And uh, so he was a hoot. He, you know, I uh, interviewed him Is on the like podcast. Is that like a play on Cote du Rhone? Exactly, or, yeah, exactly. Like it, like it. <laughs> so the, the French authorities, the, the wine authorities, actually threatened him with trademark lawsuit. So he got a busload of his farm workers to go down to the French embassy, and they sang freedom songs outside the embassy and then um, called on the ambassador and presented him with a vacuum-sealed um, package of goat droppings because there's... <laughs> There's all the goats, goats to Rome. He actually has right. a herd of goats on premise. So anyway, he he told me uh, with a wink, um, I don't know how CNN heard about this, but they showed up. And he said- yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds yeah. like um, you know, a good, a oh, good yeah. PR exercise. Exactly. <laughs> and, and lots of other media. And so the French <laughs> authorities backed off, completely dropped the suit. And so he said to me, anything you could do to stir up the controversy again would be really appreciated. <laughs> I'll try, I'll try. Now, you're obviously best known, uh, really well known for your wine writing as well and have published multiple books. You, you're currently writing a memoir. How is that different from the, the books that you've, you've written to date? Yeah, well, the uh, memoir, so in my first two books, Red, White and Drunk All Over and Unquenchable, they were told from first-person perspective, from, from my perspective, and they were travels around the wine world, you know, becoming, doing day in the life, becoming a sommelier, working a wine store, helping work the harvest and so on, so I could get deeper into my topic. But memoir is a whole other type of animal. It's very personal. You're trying to marry the actual events that happened. It's just a slice of life, but by the way. Memoir is different from autobiography. That's your entire life. and right. Only if you're like Winston Churchill or some rock star celebrity would anybody be interested in that. Memoir was a slice of life. And for me, it was one year, a very bad vintage. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Started with my divorce and ended with a social media meltdown of epic proportions. And so, but the two were tied in many ways. And so what people look for from a memoir is kind of the reflections. What can I learn from this for my own life? Or how can I see my story in this story? It's definitely still wrapped all up in the wine world. Um, so there's lots of wine content in it, but it's it's not like 
um, the first two where let's go visit Australia and talk to a wacky winemaker who doesn't have a PR agent and will give us great quotes. This one is more about let's go behind the scenes of the wine world. Let's look at the underbelly, but also the, the really great parts about the wine industry. There's lots of wonderful people welcoming hospitality, but there is a darker side that I think deserves exploration just as, um, you know, I aspire to be, but I'm nowhere near in comparison. But what Tony Bourdain, Anthony Bourdain did with Kitchen Confidential for the restaurant world, trying to go behind the scenes in the wine world and especially for people who love wine or are curious about it, but really, you know, don't have access to some of the things that you and I both get access to, James, from tastings to trips to all kinds of things, but also just what happens within the industry as well. Without going into too much detail, what's the sort of darkness, the dark underbelly of the industry that you're referring to? <laughs> oh, my. Well, I can't give it all away, but yes, <laughs> yeah. it's very mysterious and dark. Um, so there is a piece of it, James, about being a woman in this industry, and I'm sure you've heard of a lot of the things that have come out in the wine industry recently from the quartermaster sommelier scandal that was unveiled by the New York Times, the, the sexism, the misogyny, the harassment. That's not my story, the, the quartermaster sommeliers, but it's... There's many stories like that, the attacks of Instagram or women and all kinds of things. But as a woman who's been writing about wine for 20 years, I've had my fair share. And uh, this is not a revenge book, but it's kind of like, <laughs> here's my experience. Here's what's happened. And it's just a way of reflecting on where the industry was 10 years. This took place 10 years ago, where it was, where it is now. And as a way of understanding the industry. And you've got a publisher already? Yes, or? yes. Yeah, yes. When's um, it coming just out? Signed it at uh, Christmas, but with traditional lead times, it's a tra traditional publisher, Dundurn Press. Um, usually it's a year or two. So they're going to work fast. That was air quotes right there. Um, and it would be published probably spring 2023. So, okay, fantastic. Yeah, yeah I'm well, really excited about it. But yeah, it's still a long road ahead. <laughs> oh, look, another question I meant to ask earlier on. Canada, I noticed recently, is the fifth top market for Australian wine exports. Right. What are, what are the predominant Australian wine styles that you're exposed to over there? Yeah, Australian wine is really popular here. Um, so we love your blends, you know, Cabernet, Shiraz blends, GSM, Grenache thrown in there. Of course, the standalone grapes are marvelous. Australia really has a great reputation here, I think. And again, we talked a little bit about this on your podcast. I think there is still a stereotype about it all just being a warm climate instead of all these marvelous, cool climates like the McLaren Vale or, you know, the Adelaide Hills or, you know, Margaret River. And I think um, there's still lots of education to be done here. Uh, about Australian wines, but um, yeah, we have a, a great thirst for your wines here. Fantastic. Well, um, Unreserved Wine Talk That's podcast. That's right, the podcast. Uh, you can find that wherever you listen to podcasts, I assume. Yes, including this one, uh, your podcast. So Unreserved Wine Talk uh, is in all the places, and then they can also find the podcast and everything else I do, including my online wine and food pairing courses, the books, um, everything else at nataliemclean.com. So that's N-A-T-A-L-I-E-M-A-C-L-E-A-N.com, nataliemclean.com. 
Wonderful. Natalie, thanks so much for joining me on the show. Oh, thanks, James. This was great. We have to chat again, maybe tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) The Drinks Adventures podcast is produced by me, James Atkinson, with additional production and mixing by Dave Robertson. You can find complete transcripts, links, and other information on the show at drinksadventures.com.au. You can follow me on all social media platforms at by James Atkinson. Like my Facebook page, James Atkinson Drinks Adventures, to be kept informed of podcast giveaways and other news about the show. The Drinks Adventures podcast needs your support as listeners. Please do us a favour and leave an honest review and rating for the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. We love hearing your feedback and it helps inform other people this is a show worth listening to. Or simply drop us a line at hello at drinksadventures.com.au.